Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 24, August 30th through September 5th, 1861. Before we get going today, I just had a quick announcement, and that is the next Patreon episode is up on the feed So if you check that out, we did the movie review, uh, The Jayhawkers. So we have that as well as a memoir review from last month. And this upcoming month, I think we're going to go back to a memoir review. So just be on the lookout for that additional content. And once again, as we say at the bottom of the show, your support is greatly appreciated. Last week, we had our first real Union success that involved the Navy at Hatteras, North Carolina. We also had a discussion of the Navy's and their strategic situation for both North and South. We finished with a wrap-up on the fate of amputees after the war, as well as some early prosthetics. This week, we will head back to Missouri and talk about the strategic situation out in the Western Theater. When last we left off in Missouri, the Battle of Wilson's Creek was over, with not much of an advantage gained by either side. Union forces were allowed to retreat to safety with the occupation of Springfield by the Southern forces. Rather than continue to press the advantage, Confederate regular forces withdrew back into Arkansas. Sterling Price and the Missouri State troops would advance further into the state, even without the support from the regular Confederate Army. Even though there was a setback at Boonville, the victory claimed at Carthage, and the decent performance at Wilson's Creek, put some wind into the sails of the state guard. Confidence being high, even without old Ben, old Pap would wish to capitalize. They would count on an influx of volunteers to swell their ranks. Eventually, the state troops would become a sizable army, but would not be enough to challenge the Union forces. Despite their larger size, Union forces would be more than willing to fight it out with the state troops. Obviously, even though there had been some gains in terms of discipline, uh, I think the regular Federals liked the odds against the state troops. Perhaps without the support from regular Confederates, they would perform poorly like the times before Wilson's Creek. On September 2nd, 1861, the Battle of Dry Wood Creek would be fought. Abolitionist General James Lane would lead men out of Fort Scott, Kansas, in an attempt to ambush Price and his men. Now, Fort Scott had been established in 1842 as a frontier fort and played a role in Bleeding, Kansas, which we spoke about 
in the early episodes. Lane commanded only a few hundred Kansas troops, as opposed to Price with his several thousand men. He had served in Congress for the state of Indiana before moving out to the new state, becoming one of the first senators for Kansas. After Drywood Creek, he would lead a raid into Missouri that would result in looting and several men killed. It would actually inspire a book that would in turn inspire Clint Eastwood and his movie The Outlaw Josie Wales. Lane would not serve a major part in the war from then on out, but he was actually reportedly an objective of the Quantrill raid into Lawrence, Kansas in 1863. Unfortunately, Lane would commit suicide in 1866. In September of 1861, he would lay out a trap at Drywood Creek in western Missouri. The area was wooded and perfect for a surprise attack on the state troops. Initially, it was successful, with the Union infantry ambushing the vanguard of the Missouri men. Price was able to use his superior numbers and bring more to the field, a problem that we saw at Carthage earlier in the year. This time, though, the Missouri men were more seasoned. With numbers now against them, Lane and his Jayhawkers would retreat. In fact, they retreated so rapidly that they would leave their supplies behind to be captured by the Confederates. The engagement would be known as the Battle of the Mules because of this. Price's men, apparently the proud owners of former Yankee livestock post-victory. Casualties compared to Wilson's Creek were light, 25 on the side of the Kansans and 11 on the side of the Missourians. Lane would eventually reach Fort Scott and its relative safety. Price was able to continue moving on toward Lexington, now with even more confidence and gaining even more crucial volunteers. This continued incursion through the state would be a problem for the commander of the Union forces in the area. We have spoken of him before, but I think we should give a good, proper introduction. His name is John C. Fremont. Now, John C. Fremont was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1813, but moved to Charleston as a child. Fremont would attend school before becoming a teacher aboard a naval vessel. In 1833, he would join the topographical engineers and begin a career as an explorer. In fact, John would become known as the Great Pathfinder. The guide during several expeditions for Fremont was none other than Kit Carson. Kit Carson was a famous frontier trapper and mountain man. He had served Stephen Kearney in the Mexican War, and in a famous incident had walked barefoot in the desert to reach potential reinforcements when Kearney's force was surrounded during the conquest of California. There were several expeditions that Fremont undertook in the 1840s 
in terms of exploration. In the meantime, he had married Jessie Benton Fremont, who was a force in her own right. Thomas Benton, her father, was a force in Congress, serving five terms as a Missouri senator. Westward expansion was something Benton supported, so while at first disapproving of the marriage between John and Jesse, it turned out having a pathfinding son-in-law was all right. One exploration expedition that was guided by Carson would turn from a scientific endeavor to a military probe under orders from Little Hickory, James Polk, who informed Fremont that if war with Mexico was declared, then he was to move on California. We know that Polk was definitely planning on a war with Mexico, in fact, actively trying to start one, and that California was a large item on his shopping list. Without going too much into the details, although it is a fascinating story, Fremont is able to conquer several cities in California, which was aided by inciting a rebellion amongst native Californians. The Pathfinder would sign the treaty ending hostilities. Fremont would become the military governor of the territory, but would refuse to leave when Stephen Kearney arrived to take over, resulting in a court-martial. Polk would actually move to keep Fremont in the army and appease the powerful Thomas Hart Benton. Gold was discovered on land owned by the Fremonts in California, and what do you do if you are famous and have a large amount of disposal income in the 1800s? Why, you run for president, of course. John had been the first Republican candidate for presidency, being a supporter of the Free Soil Movement that we talked about all the way back in episode one. Running against Buchanan, Fremont would be defeated by the Democratic candidate. Already, Fremont was a radical Republican and a larger-than-life figure, so it seemed to be a pretty safe decision to appoint him to command in the Department of the West. This action, Lincoln hoped, would assist in turning Missouri for the Union cause. If anything, though, it may have been more detrimental than it was helpful, and we will see why. As Price would advance further into Missouri, Fremont would declare martial law. Fremont was already criticized for being autocratic in his leadership. Do you remember Francis P. Blair from back in episode 8, a key figure in the Camp Jackson affair? Well, Fremont and Blair would not get along due to powerful names in the Republican ranks colliding. Fremont even has Frank arrested at one point, so yes, not a good working relationship. Blair would write to Washington of Fremont's extravagant spending habits and incompetence. After investigation, it turned out that some of Blair's accusations were true. Fremont had a large mansion that was protected by a large amount of bodyguards he hired from Kentucky. A little private army, as it were. He was also a little shady in his practices in doling out government contracts for arms, 
some of which went to his friends from California. Fremont is also given grief for not supporting Nathaniel Lyon, who is now a martyr for the cause. We know that Lyon had received orders to withdraw, but it still does not look good that Fremont was perfectly content with letting his subordinate out to dry and not really being too shaken up when news came in of his death. These were not really the straws that broke the camel's back, though. Rather, on August 30th, 1861, Fremont, at the urging of fellow radical Republicans and his wife, would declare martial law number one and number two emancipate all the slaves in Missouri. Now, martial law, just to be clear, is a suspension of normal law in favor of a military government. President Lincoln was not happy. But why, you ask? He's the one who emancipates the slaves. Why would he be upset? Well, Lincoln understands that hanging on to Missouri and Kentucky will be important early goals in the war. Fremont's actions can turn more support away from the U.S. government and into the arms of the Confederates. The president, at first, would ask for Fremont to rescind the order, which was refused. Jessie Fremont would lobby for her husband in Washington, but it was no use. Lincoln would publicly disavow the action of the Pathfinder and remove him from his position. Fremont is going to stick around for a bit, but he will be placed on the bench for a tad. Now, Lincoln would choose as a replacement for Fremont, recalling the radical Republican from his position in Missouri, and instead moving into place one Henry Halleck. Halleck was a native of New York, attending West Point in the 1830s. If you recall our segment on tactics and tacticians that the Civil War generals took inspiration from, then you may remember Dr. Dennis Mahan. Halleck was a favorite student of Mahan during his time at the military academy. Upon graduation, he would join the Corps of Engineers and travel to Europe to study fortifications. Halleck would earn the nickname Old Brains after setting out an electric tour. During the Mexican-American War, Henry would translate Jomini's work from French to English. So Old Brains is certainly living up to that nickname for sure. After the war, he would leave the army to practice law, moving to California and having several successful business ventures. Fun fact, Halleck also marries the granddaughter of one Alexander Hamilton. Although a Democrat and sort of sympathetic to the Southern cause, Halleck would stay on the side of the Union and become a major general, the fourth highest ranking general in the army. At the start of the war, he is only behind Winfield Scott, McClellan, and Fremont, who he replaces in St. Louis. Halleck's ability to organize would be sorely needed in the Department of Missouri. It is through his efforts that things start to turn around, whereas Fremont was struggling. While his performance as a battlefield commander is questionable, this cannot be denied 
and would propel his career to eventually reach Washington. In 1861, Halleck would begin to have a rocky relationship with a general under his command by the name of Ulysses S. Grant. Grant and Sherman would have different experiences under Halleck, but I think it is important to note that Halleck did share Grant's confidence in his future right-hand general. We'll see more of Halleck as we progress, but just know that Missouri is in more capable hands for the moment. Now let's mention the strategic situation in Kentucky. Much like how Fremont has ties to Missouri, Lincoln would need a commander that could win the border state for the Union. There, at least in the beginning of the war, was no better candidate than the hero of Fort Sumter, Robert Anderson. You remember Anderson was a native of Kentucky. Having an established general and now prominent local figure would be seen as valuable in keeping the border state in the Union. Anderson, unfortunately, would not last long. He would resign, citing his poor health, and would be replaced by William Tecumseh Sherman. Anderson would have a personal spot for Sherman from then on out, and check closely on his career as it progresses. When we introduce Sherman, this is the part where there are fairly wild correspondences about the amount of troops needed and possibly where Sherman has a bit of a breakdown. I would argue that many journals were wanting to avoid another first bull run, and they especially did not want to be the one who would bring about the disaster. The situation in Kentucky is complicated because neither side really wants to make the first move. I think to be fair to Fremont, there is a threat that if the state decides to join the Confederacy, there could have been a legitimate invasion of federal-occupied Missouri, which is part of the reason why he withheld troops from Nathaniel Lyon, leading to Wilson's Creek. There were more Missouri state troops on the eastern side of the state as well. Kentucky was a situation where whoever blinked first would lose. The Confederates would bite first and move into Hickman and Columbus, Missouri. Columbus was a key spot on the Mississippi River. Officially, they would cite the spotting of federal forces nearby. Kentucky, who you remember had announced neutrality, would not be amused by this, which we will talk about next week. I think it is also worth mentioning we get a good look into the Lincoln administration's strategy for the early part of the war. We have these border states that we need to secure, so we send popular figures, regardless of their military acumen or regardless of how successful they will be on the battlefield. Uh, We have John C. Fremont and Robert Anderson, who are going to be famous at the time, and they will hopefully win some hearts and minds in those states and keep those individuals who maybe are thinking of joining the Confederacy, keep them in the Union. On September 6, 1861, the now General Ulysses S. Grant would seize the town of Paducah, Kentucky. Paducah is on the Ohio River 
near where it meets the Mississippi. It is also not far from Cairo, Illinois, the base for Northern River operations in the Mississippi River Valley. Grant would move out of Cairo to move on Paducah in response to the Confederate operations in Kentucky. Paducah would be the first secessionist town that Grant would see. Confederate flags flew before the capture by Union forces. The town would be an important part of future Union movements in the area, as it will become a key base of supply, much like Cairo, for future movements into Missouri, as well as on the Mississippi River. It would actually even be the target of a raid by Confederate cavalry later in the war. Let's leave it there for a shorter episode this week. We continued our look into Missouri and introduced someone who was already famous at the time in John C. Fremont. Henry Halleck was introduced, and we got a little idea of the strategic situation in Kentucky. Next week, believe it or not, we need to head back to West Virginia because we are not quite done there. We will dive a little bit more into Kentucky and their response to the Confederate invasion, as well as introduce Leonidas Polk and also talk about Sally Tompkins. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Keep in mind, once again, we did post a new Patreon episode for this month, so definitely check that out. Support for the general upkeep of the show would be greatly appreciated. Feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns. The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.